Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm graduate assistant Jacob Michael. Here with me is our host, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Levi Russell. All right, so we wanted to get into regulations today. Uh, Levi ran across uh, an article from the Mercatus Center on a new thing that showed uh, some uh, interesting information on regulations and how they might be essentially a negative tax uh, in the sense that the poor gets impacted more so than people with higher incomes. So thought we'd start with making some connections here on regulation. Levi, you want to make some comments yeah. on regulations and costs? So anytime, I, I think anytime you're talking about regulations in terms of what we would call social regulation. So this would be like changing, changing the way that companies behave, like the way they can do certain things. Um, economic regulation as a, as a, as a concept is, is normally associated with things like licensure and entry and stuff like that. But social regulations are a little different there. This is where we get into like environmental regulations or consumer protection stuff. And anytime, in my mind, anytime you're talking about regulation, one of the things we want to pay attention to is not just, you know, we're modifying the behavior of these businesses or something like that, but what is the cost of that? Yeah. And, and I might add that our assumption usually in, in economics is that the company is already operating at basically the most efficient way they think it is to make their so it'd be very very unusual that a new regulation would cause them to be more efficient right in terms of cost minimization and otherwise and yeah. of course there's always improvements but the the company is always changing and molding and maybe laying off somebody and buying a new machine so imagine that dynamic process in the within the company they are slowly groping around for the least costly way to make their quality product that they're making, right? And so enter regulation, it really must be increasing costs. Right. And and so what one of the things we normally focus on is compliance. And so and what's interesting about compliance uh, specifically is that it is not a variable cost. It's a fixed cost, right? And so, attorneys like it. And yeah. And 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 attorneys get to buy brand new shoes and yachts and uh, <laughs> fancy educations for their kids. Yeah. So you know, these compliance costs are a fixed cost. And so the, the general idea I think sometimes you get from people who are just generally in favor of regulation is that they see it as a way to protect the consumer. Um, but oftentimes those same people are also worried about market concentration. Uh, and so what's, what's, a, what's challenging for that perspective then, you know, the fact that we're worried about, you know, consumer protection or environmental protection or something like that, but we're also concerned about, in, uh, you know, concentration in terms of the number of firms in that industry is that a fixed cost of regulation tends to, okay, maybe you're protecting the consumer, maybe, right? Maybe you're protecting the environment better, maybe. But what you're also doing is you're increasing the fixed cost in that industry, which is really, yes, okay, it costs. Usually, it usually hurts the small companies right. it, more than the big companies. Sure. And now, the big company still has to pay a cost, right? right? But but and ultimately, them, it can drive some of the smaller companies out of business longer right. term. Whereas and, the big companies are like, oh, well, we'll just add another department. And yeah, we'll yeah. Just, that's no big yeah, deal. Just, we can just add hire a, a bunch of people to shuffle oh, papers. This is, no this is only a $2,000 bill per year. And 
right? You know, we, they can easily absorb that because of economies of scale where the bigger companies, depending on the industry, there's different degrees of economies of scale, but uh, the larger the producer you are, the more you're able to economize on those fixed costs. And so your costs are lower, which make it difficult for a small producer that's operating on a smaller scale of business to absorb these fixed costs that come down the pipeline in compliance. Yeah. And so, you know, you might say like, oh, well, you know, I, I don't see any small companies in this industry or, you know, whatever. But, but the reality is that it's not just that small companies might in that industry might fall out, but it's also the case that, you know, you might get fewer companies, you know, you might get fewer entrants into the business in the future. Right. And so that's, that's a case where uh, there's an unseen cost, right? You don't see all the firms that didn't enter that industry because they couldn't get over the hurdle of these, you know, additional regulations that act as fixed costs. Now, I mean, to say, uh, that's also to say that, you know, if there are, in cases where regulations act as variable costs, then they really just are kind of applied more generally across the industry. Um, but for the most part, I would say that, you know, these types of uh, regulations are And still, costs. with variable or fixed for that matter, but maybe more so variable, you'll see the uptick in prices more. Right. So when there's a So variable, it still falls on the consumer anyway. Yeah, it's still going right. to fall on the consumer once that, it'll just be more broadly applied to the, to the producers, so... And so, so this article that I uh, had ran across a while back, and it's it's dated February 2016, and it was it's kind of interesting because what what the authors are doing. So the title is, and, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, what the what the authors uh, so the title is: How do federal regulations affect consumer prices? An analysis of the regressive effects of regulation. So I uh, said negative, didn't I? Yeah, I you did. But that's all right. Yeah, yeah. 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 But so <laughs> the. The, the idea is that, you know, so maybe we want to explain our term here, regressive. So the idea is that if this, you know, if this is a regressive effect, and that means that the, the harm that it causes is greater for people with, in this case, lower income than for people with higher income. Right? Let's, so, just, let's use the little example here just for illustration. So the lowest quintile in the United States of income is a, is a let's say, a household earning $23,000 a year. And the highest quintile, so that's breaking up 20%, lowest 20%, highest 20%. So the highest quintile of $104,000, and this is of their average spending, by the way, not their income. So you've got poor people spending in the lowest quintile, $23,000. you got big spenders, $104,000. And now if we look at clothing, the authors here said that, oh, okay, well, that makes clothing makes up uh, about 4% of the budget. But stuff like utilities is 10.3% for the low-income people and 6% for the high-income people. And then groceries are 11.3% of the low-income budget, whereas they're only 7%, right? Because we can't eat that much food, even if we're high-income. Right. Or we yeah. shouldn't eat it, just <laughs> yeah. because our incomes go up. Right, right. We should be eating more food. So that's where this regressiveness comes in, is that if we have regulations that disproportionately impact groceries, let's say, that's a bigger impact on our poor in the United States. Right. And so what they attempt to do is, is um, they, they, they use this relatively new um, and really interesting measure of regulation to, to try to, to figure out what the effects of regulations on businesses do to consumer prices. And so uh, maybe we'll start with that. And then on the back end, we'll talk about the results. So yeah. I'll just go through um, kind of how they measure regulation. It's kind of interesting. So in the past, normally regulations at the federal level were measured by basically how many pages were in the books 
that. Yeah, Milton, uh, Milton Friedman had kind of a cool thing back in the Free to Choose videos where he showed the amount of regulations just in stacks of books of pages. Right. Yep. But, of course, listeners, that that could be, you know, words on a page could be a big impact or they could be a very small impact, right? So that, that doesn't it, – it shows something, but it doesn't show a lot of the complexity of what regulations. And then even if – even if a person combed through and looked at each industry, I mean, it's, it's a mess. So in principle, we can say our, our economic principles say regulations are going to increase costs. But then when you actually try to empirically go out and measure it, that's a, that's a tall order. So, right. um, yeah, so continue on with how they yeah. did this. This is interesting and stuff that was new to me. Yeah, so one of the challenges with when, you, when you're only looking at, you know, the number of pages in these books or whatever is that you can only measure those effects on, like, big aggregates like GDP or something like that. You can't really kind of drill down even to something like, you know, the price of toasters or whatever. Um, and so <clears throat> what they did was they said, and we have this new uh, kind of statistical technology, machine learning algorithms, and, and uh, sort of text-based analysis – and what they did was they, they came up with, I think, five regulatory uh, restrictive words, right? So they're looking at the text of this Code of Federal Regulations, and they're saying words like shall, must, cannot, is required, things, uh, phrases or words that, you know, restrict your behavior in yeah. some way, right? Restrict restriction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and, you know, we're kind of drilling down, right? We're not just looking at, you know, how many words are used on the page or how, how many pages there are. But now we're, we're trying to drill down a little bit more into these specific restrictions. Um, and so I, and I don't want to go too deep into this, but basically what they do is, you know, the, the Code of Federal Regulations is split up into parts. And each one of those parts is kind of assigned to, you know, a specific regulator, right? A specific regulator has... Uh, you know, gets new things that they have to do. So the from FDA or right. So Congress passes a law or Trump signs an executive order or whatever. And then eventually it makes it down to bureaucrats. These are just employees of the, of the system that now have to try to word that the intent of that mm-hmm. policy that right. the politicians drafted. Yeah. And so, so what, what, what researchers at Mercatus were doing when they were trying to come up with this index um, then they, they also went back through that same text and said, okay, well, how often does, you know, the word banking appear or the word agriculture appear or something like that? And what they did was they came up with a probability weighted index where they said, okay, you know, the, the restrictions appear this many times and then we're going to weight those by how often Pacific industry is mentioned. And so what you end up with is, is, it, and is it found within that section? So like, a bunch of knots and shells and shall not or whatever. And then it's like egg, egg, egg. And then that's, those are tied together in that one piece. Yeah. Somehow. What, 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 the way, you, the way that you download the data from there, or at least you used to, when I was working with it more, you would get, uh, you would get one series that was all of the restrictive words for every part and every title in the code. Mm. Okay. And then you would get another series that was the probabilities that assigned that regulatory, you know, restriction to, you know, the probability that it would apply to a certain industry. Yeah. And so what I did was I, multi- you, you multiply across, right? Yeah. And you, you end up with a probability weighted in. Heaven forbid that the stuff actually yeah. got read. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, we, yeah, so we, we let, computer, let the computer read it. Well, like, we don't want to read it. Read it. Yes, <laughs> uh, and, and that unfortunately is the case that, you know, they're passing right. a regulation. I suppose a big company has their one attorney run through it, and that's the only person who's read it. And 
yeah they kind of tell their exactly. company like well we better change this process or this or whatever so, yeah so that gets into the you know the compliance, all the compliance stuff, stuff but yeah. but so then so what this is is it's supposed <laughs> to be a way to take this concept of you know page numbers and stuff and sort of drill it down to something that's more specific in terms of what the regulations are actually doing, but also on what industry those regulations are applied to. Um, and so what you what you can then do is you can say, well, in the case of, of these folks here is they said, okay, well, let's look at, you know, these specific, you know, these regulations on specific industries and see how they affect. And explain your prices. code. The NAICS code is an acronym, N-A-I-C-E-S or whatever, but it's a, uh, uh, you said like one, one was agriculture. And then if you want right. to drill down deeper, it's a three. Yeah. So there's like one, crops. one, one. Kind of explain yeah. that to the listeners. Yeah. So okay. a two, so the, the NAICS codes, I think it's North American industrial, uh, mm, yeah. something system, I think, but, but anyway, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point is that what, what, what they want to do is they want to say, okay, we want to, we want to determine, you know, we, we need for the purpose of statistics, we need to be able to divide up all the industries in the country into certain you know, in certain categories. And so just from my own background in the whole ag space, you know, one, one, the two digit NAICS codes are very general. They're very, you know, sort of like almost sector level. Yeah. Uh, you know, very, very non-specific, right. Agriculture. Yeah. So you got all of agriculture at the two. And within agriculture, level. you got crops, you got cattle. Right. So you like, you, that'll have different yeah, codes. At, at the three digit level, you have crop agriculture, you have livestock, and then you have other things like hunting. And I mean, agriculture isn't just like, you know, a farm. It's also a lot of outdoor stuff and that kind of thing too. But so the three digit code, you know, you, you might split, you know, animals and crops. And then at the four digit code, you might start splitting up the crops into different types. Right. Different types of crops. Yeah. And so, and then that's about as far down as it goes, right? The, uh, it goes, that, it can go to level. like, I think six digits, okay. but oh, some I, industries it might not apply. I'm not that. sure that every industry goes to that level of specificity. So, okay. Well, cool. I think that looks like a good spot for our break. And then afterwards, we'll come back and try to really dig into the implications of this on our poor in the United States, uh, one of our concerns with the Gordon Institute. We'll be back in 30 seconds. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. Welcome back. Uh, so continuing on with regulations and uh, Jacob, you were mentioning during the break something about owls and eggs. What were you saying there? <laughs> well, um, you know, we're talking about the, the, the costs that are passed on to those people who comply with the regulations, but 
the people who don't comply, they, they found out ways to get around them. Like they have, I think it's called, or what the what they call it is shoot and shut up is the the phenomenon or whatever that they're seeing. So they, people are finding instead of complying with the regulations for if they see an endangered species or something, it's just cheaper for them to kill the animal and get it yeah. off of their land versus to report it and have to deal. Because a lot of times they can't even continue operations on that part of the land anymore. Um, and then another thing in California, I think it was 2015, they banned uh, battery cage eggs, which is that big factory farming where. A lot of times they don't have move, uh, room to move around, so they just sit there and kind of lay eggs all day. And they've had a lot of trouble because they also ban the import of those eggs. So the, the, all there is is like the more, uh, I guess, humane type of egg production there. And they've had a lot of problems with egg shortages and egg prices going up as well in California. Yeah. And yeah, and I think the egg thing, like, like we started off with in the first half, groceries represent a higher fraction of poor people's income. So those egg prices going up are disproportionately influencing them more. Well, and something I learned from Levi, too, is actually it's in the, the, the farmer's best interest, even if they're factory farming, to keep those animals as happy as possible because a stressed-out chicken or hen yeah. lay eggs. Well, yeah, let me jump into the, you know, so in my uh, previous career, I spent time with a lot of animal science folks. And uh, what you learn is that animals, if they're under stress, which is a huge concern for farmers, I don't like this term factory farming, but you know, whatever. Uh, but you know, farmers are concerned about the stress level of their animals because you know, if you have, uh, you have cattle and you're, the conversion is what matters, right? The, the, the number of pounds of, of grain you put in them, you need it to put a certain number of pounds of meat and fat on them. And so when they're stressed out, they don't do that, right? They use that energy to reduce their stress level or deal with the stressor. And so certainly in the reproductive uh, aspects of all this, right? And, and, you know, with eggs, with chickens, that's obviously what we're talking about to an extent here. The idea behind battery cages was in part to actually keep the chickens from killing each other because, mm -hmm. you know, you put a bunch of chickens in a, mm -hmm. in a, in a place, they, they will actually, you know, they'll scratch each other up. They'll take each other's eyes out, um, you know, trying to find dominance. Right. And so that was one of the reasons behind battery cages. Now, obviously you got conveyor belts and, you know, the other things that make collecting the eggs convenient, but, there, there are a lot of problems in the wild, right? So, so that's part of the reason why we have these battery cages. And, and, you know, I think just as a general indicator that, you know, the fact that those chickens can lay an egg every day is an indication that they are not that under they're a not lot stressed. of stress. Oh, that's interesting. Right. Look at it, yeah. um, and so what's interesting is that Jason Lusk, who's a, a, probably one of the most famous agricultural economists, has yeah. a great paper on the – yeah. Uh, he's the department head at Purdue now uh, for AggieCon. So, mm. but he he has a paper with uh, with a grad student who actually I know I know was a grad student too, but where they looked at uh, <laughs> the prices of eggs in California, and when they implemented this cage free egg ban, prices in California for eggs just shot through the roof. And I mean, you know, instead of a dozen eggs being like a dollar or something like that, it was like seven or eight dollars for <laughs> eggs. Wow. Yeah, it was unreal, like a now, massive increase. Were they able to, in California, buy eggs from Kansas and and then have them, those weren't yeah, following I those regs and they could right. still sell them? Because then I, that wouldn't cause the I don't know. I, I don't so know. they banned the import of eggs that were they did the same yeah. way. Okay. It had to right. be like the free range or whatever. Yeah, so then ticks on two things, right? So two separate things that we yeah. measure in the Economic <laughs> Freedom Index. One is regulation, and then two is the free freedom to trade. And so here it's a statewide no no trade, which 
<clears throat> makes me question that even. Like, we do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> I guess we must on some. Apparently, yeah. Yeah, Promise. I mean, well, you know, in some, I, I would say some states, you know, probably find ways to do it because they, you know. Some the, loophole. Yeah, and, and what's interesting, too, from a from sort of a political standpoint is that it's kind of funny how, you know, you have people who would, who will vote for policies like this, but then they're mad when the prices go up. Right. And it's like, how did they not make that connection? Right. You know, I think that's where the sort of educational component of yeah, uh, of why we're doing out. this podcast, right. right? So that there is a connection here. With <laughs> yeah, and so these restrictions on our freedom, right? And so I, I think you know, there's there's something to be said for you know, you want some kind of consumer protection, right? This is this is the impulse people have. They're like, well, okay, well then, how do I know that you know this person I'm buying from, you know, isn't giving me, you know, uh, uh, lettuce tainted with, you know, some disease or whatever, right? How, do I, how am I supposed to know this? Um, and actually, I had an int- uh, a conversation with one of our MBA students the other day about uh, underwriters laboratories. Um, and so this used to be the kind of premier electronics, well, not necessarily electronics because they were, uh, you know, way, well before we had electronics, but the electrical uh, uh, appliances in your house in the early days especially, and, you know, I don't know if you still have them, but if you, you know, look at an old fan or something, there'll be a little silver sticker on the bottom of it that says yeah. UL. Or UL. UL. And, and what they did was, so what somebody did was they said, hey, look, if we can develop a reputation as a person who knows that this product is safe, then basically all we have to do is just <laughs> build that reputation and then everyone will send their stuff to us. And so what they do is they had a bunch of scientists there and you know, these manufacturers would send their electrical goods, their, you know, their fans or, you know, microwaves or whatever mm-hmm. to UL and UL would test them. And they would say, you know, this thing is safe. You know, it's, if you, you know, they'd pull on the cord, they'd run it forever, you know, well, run yeah. away past its, you know, the time it's supposed to be run. And that was a stuff. private organization. Yes, it's a yes. private organization. And, and so. So that's a great, great example of how we don't necessarily need the government involved with that if there's a reputation. Now, of course, they can submit it to the private thing, get the little sticker, and then run back to the factory <laughs> and change their production <laughs> process. So there has to be – there's always uh, people who are, might w- want to work around the system for a cheap buck, but those yeah. companies won't stay in business long when there's fires and other harm. So and, you know, this, and, this and, re- and the government can do any better than a sticker. They're, sure. If they're going to do that, whether yeah. it was a government regular or whether it was private, that, that particular company, nefarious company, is still going to do that. Right. And so there's a, there's a wonderful book that I love and has a hilarious title and it's written by a guy who's really kind of a, a back to the land kind of farmer guy. And he has a, he has a farm called Polyface where, you know, he's trying to practice sort of sort of pre-industrial agriculture, I guess is what he would say it. But he has a, a book called everything I want to do is illegal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's a really fun book because what he does is he actually goes in and he's like, look, here's the regulation, right? Here's what you hear right? And maybe what you hear on the news or what you think goes into the book and all that stuff and, and gets, you know, oh, this is what we have to do or whatever. Uh, this is what businesses have to do. Well, he actually talks about what, you know, what those regulators are actually doing and how they actually operate. And his, and, and mostly through him sort of telling stories of, you know, his run-ins with these uh, regulators. And I think that that brings me to another point where, you know, maybe we want to talk a little bit about the way the, the elected official versus the administrative bureaucrat yeah, yeah. used I mean, to that, interact with us. That's a good, good thing. Before we go there though, I, I did want to make a comment on the egg thing. I, I think a, perhaps a Milton Friedman type approach of let's say government 
sees a problem or maybe there's a cultural outrage about chickens in these cages, rather than at the state level banning them, maybe have a regulation that says every egg carton has to disclose whether this was free range or caged chicken. And sure. it's a simple stamp. Right. And then the consumer is free to choose whether they want to buy the right. free range or the cage one. And if they care, rather than having that blanket forced across the whole population of California, which even California would have people with on both sides of the fence there, we allow the consumer to, to make that choice. Right. See, and I, and I love this because this is kind of my wheelhouse, but like, so, you know, I, I wrote a post, I wrote a blog post on my old blog like four years ago about, about labeling issues, which is what you're talking about, right? Yeah. So you put a label on it and let people choose, right? Um, and so we had this, you know, we had this big fight over country of origin labeling on meat. So uh -huh. we have mandatory country of origin labeling on fruits and vegetables in the U.S., right? So you have to know, you know, the, the oh, grocer. Oh, that's why it's always on. Mm -hmm. The grocer <laughs> has to tell you where it came from, right? I mean, there's no pineapple farms in, uh, you know, North right. Dakota, right? So there was this big fight over country of origin labeling on meat. And, you know, of course, there's all kinds of, you know, sort of interest groups, you know, fighting over this whole thing. But, you know, I want I sort of question the basic logic of this, you know, does this label actually increase the amount of information the consumer has about that actual product, right? Because this label might tell you cage-free eggs, right? Well, these people don't even know. Most people have no idea what cages these chickens are even in mm -hmm. or even why there might be a benefit to putting them in the cage. Right, and so but do they have the right to not care? <clears throat> yeah, it's, but I, but I, but I, I guess <laughs> I think they do. Sure, now, and I'm not talking about rights. I'm just talking about like, does it actually accomplish its goal? Right? Does it actually increase the amount of information you have? Like, I mean, yeah, in some very vague sense, it tells you in general what's happening. But if you there's other knowledge you have to have, yeah. But to if be able it's to important that. to you, then the knowledge. Sure, is there, that's true. Which you wouldn't have if it didn't right. have that. That's a good point. So what I, what I think is also interesting, you know, as we're talking about this, is like, you know, we have this idea that we, we vote, we elect legislators, those legislators go, and they go to, you know, they have their sessions to try to solve problems, right? They get expert witnesses that tell them about problems that are happening in certain industries or whatever, um, and, you know, they're going to write a bill to perhaps increase regulation on some, you know, specific industry or to solve some certain problem. And, the, the problem is that there is such a gap between what gets put in a bill and what actually um, is required of these uh, of a business or an individual yeah. that it's almost unrecognizable because mm -hmm. the way we used to have this is the bills were pretty long and they were pretty uh, specific. Oh. Right? So now they're still long. <laughs> like some of them are still really long because they're, you know, we're regulating things that we would have never even thought of regulating um, mm -hmm. hundred years ago. But, but what happens is the, the bills are written very vague, right? Um, and it's called the general bills problem. The bills are written so vaguely. And, and the whole idea is you'll, you'll see phrases like we, we charge the FDA with, you know, determining the, the pro the proper blah, 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 blah. Right. And so there's, you know, it's almost like ironic that there's very little regulation of the administrative, the executive branch, the unelected bureaucracy by the Congress, who at least in theory, right, is answerable to their constituents, right? You know, the, the bureaucracy is not answerable to those constituents, right? Politicians come and go, 
and everybody in the EPA just sticks around, right? Pretty much, except mm -hmm. for the top. The very top might change, but everybody else is doing the work, writing these regulations and interpreting these bills and then determining how to enforce them, right? So all of that part is done by people who are not answerable to the public in any way at all. Mm -hmm. um, and it, so it, it's just, it's so funny that over the past hundred years, the administrative state that, you know, basically progressive era gave us has, has really disconnected, you know, the average person's experience through, you know, and then, and then they're them implementing, you know, the problems they have or trying to solve problems they have through the political process. Uh, it's even worse than it was, you know, 150 years ago. I think that kind of speaks to what happened with the Trump regime coming in. Um, he ran on reducing regulations and I think his pledge was, was it four to one for every new, for every one new regulation, four, I think have to be taken off the books. And what, right. and this was a few years ago, what, what ended up happening in that year, I remember being a headline was, uh, something like 22 ended up being removed for every one. Right. And so all it took was a little momentum from a leader right. to say, we got to reduce. And, and that just shows all the low hanging fruit. I mean, what I am I don't know this for certain, but what I imagine was there was so much low hanging fruit because you had these bureaucrats or something that created something 10 years ago that was basically either obsolete or meaningless. Or just point. not being enforced. Not yeah. being enforced, mm -hmm. you know, whatever happened, but it mm -hmm. stayed on the books. And the, and the problem with that is that if you have new industries come in, it only adds confusion like, okay, what rules do I have to follow? And they pull mm -hmm. up the regs and that yeah. reg from 10 years ago is still on there. And they're like, oh, does this matter for my new innovation? Maybe this is a gray area to have to apply. And, you know, so yeah. it's just a, it's just a mess. And so I, I've always said, I think I've said on previous podcasts that I think um, that might be one of the greatest contributions to the growth that we've experienced, even though that's very difficult to measure of just Trump's leadership and mm -hmm. in, in having these regulations removed. I think it just, added to the positive business environment that increased business expectations for profits in the future. Right. You know, some right. others might argue, well, that's because they knew it was going to be the wild west and they could take advantage of anybody because <laughs> the government wouldn't be there to do it. You know, I don't believe that. Yeah. Uh, I don't see people dying in the streets course. from tainted lettuce. Yes, exactly. Right. Although you bring up the lettuce thing, we did have a lettuce outbreak here. Well, so sure. But I mean, it's still, it's still controlled, right? It's still yeah. signs in all the windows yeah. and, you know, still within none of those really realm. important things are, are gone. Right. Yeah. So. Um, another thing you mentioned that I wanted to comment on was the, it's more complex or whatever than a hundred years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in a lot of people's minds, it's like, Oh, the world's so much different than it was a hundred years ago. And it's so complex. We really need more government to handle the complexity of the world. And so nobody can deny the complexity and the input chains and production process and globalization, blah, 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 blah. But you can't deny that the consumer has also increased their ability to be informed. Right. Now, whether they yep. choose to be informed or not is a different story. Sure. But even 30, 40 years ago, it was a whole different ballgame on the ability of consumers to check out for themselves, to be free to choose, so to speak, on whether they want to buy this product or whether it's dangerous for them or not or whatever. Right. All of that stuff with consumer reviews right at everybody's fingertips. Yeah. I mean, it's just an amazing change. And so I think that argument kind of goes out the window and it's the one I've been making for a while that I think there's lots of opportunities for us to shift things back to the private sector in a, in a, in a number of different ways and possibly reduce some of that uh, because the consumers are more accountable, more knowledgeable, or at least they have access to that. And so this, 
this idea of uh, the government protecting us, I don't think is needed as much as maybe it had been in the past. Yeah, and 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 I think you know, to put it purely in economics terms, right? So Tyler Cowen has talked a lot about the fact that you know information asymmetry is a lot lower than it used to be, right? right? That, that that that's yeah, that's, yeah, right. that's where you're you're kind of getting the ability to talk. Yep. Uh, you know, people. Everybody has this information that they that they need. And, yep. Uh, so. All right. So that looks like a good place to wrap. So once again, we've uncovered and figured out world's most pressing problems here on the Faith and Economics podcast. I guess we didn't bring faith into it. Maybe we should say a quick yeah. closing prayer or something. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for all these insights we gained today. Amen. All right, there's our faith component today, folks. Sorry, I usually try to work that in a little earlier into the podcast. So on behalf of Gordon Institute, appreciate you all uh, listening. And uh, if you want to hit the subscribe button so that we're a regular download, that'll help us move up through the ranks. And other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.